We're joined by writer Minda Honey, founder and creator of the digital alt-indie magazine, Taunt. We talk with her about her forthcoming memoir, an anthology of assholes from Little A Publishing Company. Minda talks to us about what life was navigating through her 20s, exploring the wonderfully messy world of dating and heartbreak, and how coming back to Kentucky allowed her to reconcile the restlessness of her wanting to return home. Grab your charcuterie board, your favorite cocktail, and get ready to laugh away the next hour on this episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. We're your hosts. My name is Denny. And I am Veronica. And this is a special episode because we're at the time that you're hearing this podcast in the month of April. And April is our birthday month. We yes. turn two years old this year. We're big. We're doing things. We're doing things, <laughs> right? And one of the things that we're doing today, we're speaking to a wonderful writer, um, and we just can't wait for you all to meet her. Her name is Minda Honey. Minda Honey is a Louisville, Kentucky writer. Her debut essay collection, An Anthology of Assholes, love that title so yes, much. It's like vulgar geniuses. Yes, <laughs> but better. <laughs> it's forthcoming from Little A summer this summer in 2023. Until then. Uh, you can read her writing at The Undefeated, Long Reads, Teen Vogue, The Guardian, Catapult, and elsewhere. And you can follow her. Y'all follow her. Go to her Instagram. She is fun. Yes. <laughs> Go to her Twitter. Um, and you can find her at, at Minda, M-I-N-D as in dog, A, honey. Honey, like you put in your tea. Yes. Minda, honey. Welcome to the show, Minda. How you doing today? Thank you so much for having me. I feel so honored, so special. <laughs> so we've we like I'm not afraid to say we've been kind of like stalking your Instagram ever since like I like you know, I've read you in A Measure of Belonging, that anthology from Sinel Barnes and I told Veronica, we got to talk to this gal. <laughs> she was like, she's both of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am I am your love child. It's true. <laughs> and I'm like, this would be so cool, you know. But fast forward, I think maybe like two years now or a year. And here we are. Yeah, here we are making oh, yeah. dreams happen. Making it happen. Making it happen. So we're gonna jump off because this feels like it's gonna be a really good and fun interview. And uh, <laughs> we're gonna put you in the hot seat for a little for a little minute. Okay. Um, and, we're, um, we're kicking yeah. it off in the hot seat. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so we're going to uh, pass this off to Denny. She's going to ask you some questions. And, uh, <laughs> we're going to see what you say. Okay. okay. That's not really the hardest. You know, you'll be expert at this. So just to start things off, 
what would be your perfect date look like? Oh, my perfect date. I like one of those dates that end up being kind of like a, um, an unexpected adventure, you know, where you start off in one place and then you go to check something else out. And then like something kind of funny happens, like maybe some weirdo talks to you all and you're kind of like exchanging looks, you know, (laughs) Uh, are you a more like outdoorsy type or you like 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 museums and like chit-chatting with a drink are you like let's go to the bar to the club to the bar to another bar (laughs) when I lived in Denver like all the time like the men would want to take you hiking and it's like I'm not going into the woods with some man I don't know and his bandana wearing dog like I don't even think my parents would come to my funeral they'd be like well she did it to herself like you know like that just sounds like a really good formula for going missing like I like I don't know you I don't know these woods like this yes that's like dateline material right <laughs> I try to go on a date not be on dateline so yes yeah so I'm not an outdoors like I don't want to like yeah I don't want to be subjected to like the elements on a first date um yeah I like a bar I like a museum I like a show uh I like a I like a fine dining experience I like activity that's fine uh in my 20s at one point I was going on so many dates that I was doing like target dates uh, so I like I would meet guys at Target and <laughs> just, you know, like we get our targeting done. You know, I, I saved one guy from buying like 150 thread count sheets. I was like, bro, like we're too old for this. Like he in <laughs> like 40 more bucks and like get the, get the real sheets, friend, get the real sheets. You know, That's let, a good them idea. Carry, let them carry my big bag of potting soil back to the car, you know? Yeah. yeah. And then if it out like you haven't really lost any time or money and so then like the second date can be a little bit um a little bit more involved now I was able to do that in Orange County because like I'm not from there like I could never do that here in Louisville because I'd absolutely run into people I know and they'd be like who's this like what <laughs> <laughs> be all up in your business right. yeah be like she's at it again <laughs> <laughs> Mm -mm. (laughs) all right so your next question is what is the best food what's the best thing to eat in louisville kentucky oh there's this restaurant uh, i go to it all the time called foco uh it's a mexican brunch spot they're over in this place called logan street market uh shout out to chef paco and josh they do a lot of really great work in the community. Their team is just like always happy, always has like the best energy. And then the food is like on point. Like it's some of the best food in the city at a really kind of, you know, great price point. So I always take people there. I always recommend they, that they go there. Um, you know, I really, really love FOCO. I also, there's a place, um, Red Hog Butcher. I'm like pointing like you guys know, like it's, like <laughs> it's that way. Uh, <laughs> you know, like because I like to do if as you have you know probably gleaned from my Instagram account, I like to do a little at home charcuterie board, and so I usually get my meats uh, from from Red Hog sliced fresh. And even though I go there a lot, I still have like 
no idea how one is supposed to order meats at a butcher. So I'm like, can I just say, give me $5 worth of the prosciutto? Like, is that okay? <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, how, I don't know how this works. So yeah, I, I don't know how to order meat too. I'm the meat eater. Veronica doesn't consume any living thing. No, oh, that's... I, eat, I eat eggs, but yeah, eggs are great. Yeah, eggs are where yeah, it's at. <laughs> but I, I am like, when I see your like boys, I'm like, we need, I need, I need this in my life right now. And I was, at some point, I was obsessed in making them. Veronica was like, you're getting good at this. And I'm like, in, in the back of my head, well, I mean, they just did it. Might as well just do it too. <laughs> you feel so fancy like if you're like grazing on a charcuterie board the whole day and it's like getting like making a charcuterie board is like buying someone flowers like when you invite people over to your home and they see this amazing spread that you put together for them like they always feel so like flattered and cared for and if you're a vegetarian or a vegan like you can put together a wonderful grazing platter I've done dessert like base kind of yeah I just think it's something you know being Filipino being black like hospitality is major and there's just like something about it that I think really speaks to that that level of hospitality I won before the pandemic 2019 December I threw a charcuterie party where everyone brought three elements to put on like a massive charcuterie table and a lot of my friends had no idea what charcuterie was and so I was like okay this is like here's a list of possible items you could bring here's some stories you can go to here's some cheap shit I don't want you to bring into my home like you know (laughs) (laughs) we're laying it out for them yes we're only eating the real deal stuff yeah you come up in here with that Velveeta block that is not cheese we don't know what that is I know it ain't cheese if you want to enjoy it in the privacy of your own home that's your business but it does not belong on my charcuterie table what's the best cheese for you uh you know I like uh I like Telegio for like a a soft cheese and that's T-A-L-L-E-G-I-O I I think Mm -hmm. and then when it comes to uh, a hard cheese like I like I like when those cheeses that's got like the kind of salt crystal crunchies in it. Yes. And so anything, any hard cheese like that, especially if it's got a little truffle in it, I, I love it. I don't eat a ton of cheese because I'm lactose intolerant. So, you know, one block of cheese will last me for like a good spread. Uh, Trader Joe's has some great vegan cheeses right now. They're vegan feta. It's very convincing. Very. I did a vegan month with one of my friends in October. And so you know, I, I gave it a go and I was, I was super impressed by it. it had the nice saltiness to it. That's mm. good. Cause it's hard to find vegan cheese. I think that's the main reason why I'm not vegan. Cause I love cheese. So I ate like several cheese sticks today. <laughs> I love cheese so much. So <laughs> vegan, vegan cheese- cheeses are weird. Like they're, they're creamy and they taste off. Like there's just always something. They're always something, but this feta is like the right consistency. Like it feels like a block of feta and it's got a nice saltiness to it. It doesn't have some weird coconut undertone, like <laughs> no cashew base. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it might be, but I can't taste it. And that's, you know, that's my measure of success. So Where's the best place to find cute clothes? 
Oh, that is a good question. I've been trying to like step up my clothes game now that I'm a lady in her mid to late thirties. Um, and I feel like I just need like, I like, I don't like, I feel like my clothes can't be as thin anymore. Like, like I need, like, I need like some, like, like some durable fabrics. <laughs> support and yeah like when I was 21 (laughs) like I could wear tissue paper dresses from forever 21 but now like you know now that I'm a a full-figured woman in her 30s like I feel like I need I need clothes that have a little structure to them that you know um so I've been I've been I've been trying to step it up a little bit I've been dabbling in uh in free people I've done a little little free people um but those are kind of like investment pieces, you know, because yeah. they're expensive yeah. and their sizing is also really weird. Like you wouldn't think that because you see like their models are not very body diverse, but they actually, because all their models are drowning in every outfit, they actually do have sizing that's pretty accommodating. <laughs> um, so yeah, so free people's great. I order all of my workout clothes and shorts from American Eagle, which is you know, my sister put me on, they're making pants and shorts for women with thick thighs. And like a lot of their shorts are either drawstring or they have a little bit of um, the kind of like elastic back in them. Because otherwise all my stuff gaps because like I'm short and like my ass to waist ratio. (laughs) (laughs) You know, everybody want a BBL, but nobody want these BBL problems. That's right. that's been the benefit to me um, now that everyone's getting BBLs is now that there's clothing to accommodate what was once a very like rare kind of like bodily structure. It's like, okay, well now everybody's gone out and bought it. Maybe I can like buy clothes now that kind of like, you know, fit me, <laughs> fit me better and not everything's going to be like a hula hoop around my waist. So, so yeah, so American Eagle for like my workout clothes and my shorts um that confetti dress that's like my most popular outfit on Instagram I got that at Selkie and I'm gonna Tiffany Haddish that bitch like y'all are gonna see me in every occasion in that dress (laughs) cute yeah but they're not they're not cheap but I mean it's also like you know just like a dress made out of sequins so like so I, I get it. That's labor intensive. She deserves every penny. She's also really size inclusive and like has like diverse models of all kinds. So that's really great. Onion, like if you've never had an onion dress, like I found out about onion from Samantha Irby's Instagram. And she's also just like a curvy black auntie. And she makes these dresses that just will make anyone feel beautiful and fit beautifully. And when you order, you actually tell her like, you know, what your height is and like what size, like height heels you're gonna, so you can, um, you know, get a dress that's cut right. That's but good. Yeah. That's what Tan France always talks about. Like you find that outfit, you get that thing tailored to fit you. Tailored. I've had the same tailor for more than 20 years. Like she tailored one of my uh, prom dresses in high school. Uh, shout out to Sunny, who will absolutely never listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, you never know. 
<laughs> sunny, sunny over at, you know, Blooming Sun Alterations. She's <laughs> the best. And like, again, like she's so good that like when you go, like you're going to run into people, you know, at the fucking Taylor because um, she's like the best in the city. So, but yeah, like sometimes I pay as much for like if I buy a dress that's like, you know, if I buy a maxi dress that's like 60 bucks, sometimes I'm paying that much to like have it, to have it tailored. And it's annoying being short, but it really, really, it really does make a difference. So it's an investment, right? Like when you're buying pieces, you might not, you know, need to fill your whole closet. If you can, if you can, that's, that's awesome. But it's good to have some sturdy pieces in there that you're like, these are my favorites. I know that I'm going to stick beside them. They're going to stick beside mm-hmm. me and make me feel good when I'm wearing them. So it means a yeah. lot. I get that. It does. It does. And like, and I was fortunate enough, like my mom, like growing up, like she, she would like, she would do him my clothes and things like that for me. Now she's like, she's not old, but she's older. And so she's like, my eyes hurt, my hands hurt. And I like, you know, I don't want to be putting her through, through all that. So <laughs> that's the struggle though like being a shorty I am I'm short I'm like barely barely five I I say I'm five one but that's like some sneakers but (laughs) um but yeah like all my clothes like pants and dresses like rompers if I have to cut it on the on the bottom then I gotta cut it somewhere else too like the stress yep yep it's like it's it's never a one like it's not one thing it's always (laughs) it's always like a few different things asos is really good like they have a lot of petite options but right now i feel like they just went really hard and like the prairie dresses so (laughs) i haven't bought anything there for a while because i'm just like i don't i don't like this i don't i don't want this i don't know why that trend is coming Back. No, I don't. Maybe it's because people are like, oh, it's a pandemic. We're all inside. I don't want anyone to look at me, cover me in like this big bedroom sheet. I don't know what, what it is. Um, <laughs> in a Republic's like factory store though, I just ordered a petite coat, like a light kind of jacket coat from them. And it's so nice that it's petite. So like my hands aren't like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> y'all can't see me, but that's my hands drowning in my sleeves. Yeah. I, ex- I know exactly what that is. Cause all like long sleeve anything including like stuff for work it's like always up to here yeah like who needs gloves who needs gloves like nobody just no. fold your your gloves and put them in your pocket hold them right. Right. so uh let's get started into the whole reason other than all these other wonderful questions we just asked you on why we uh when we we brought you here so like i like i told you earlier i'm i met you first in the pages of a measure of belonging where you were one of the 21 writers of color that's in our barnes uh pick to talk about the new american south um when you mentioned that you were filipino i immediately felt seen because i'm like who is filipino in the south (laughs) like literally i like i know nobody except for me and like my family there's this sense of like pride that's like swelled reading a work of art from somebody that you know has my same bloodlines um choosing and believing that you are a writer was not an easy path for you like I've read in your past essays can you tell our listeners how that journey has been like and what was the pivotal moment that allowed you to pursue this career sure wait a second let me ask, where are you and your family at where are y'all at we're in Florida, you know. We're in oh, Florida. 
Yeah. yeah. You gotta, you gotta, yeah. um, you gotta be reading Annabelle. Are you reading Annabelle's, uh, she's, she took one of my workshops last year. We're connected on Twitter. I connected her with Sanel. Um, and she's down in Florida, like, I think kind of like in the Fort Lauderdale area. And so she's Filipino and white and her mom came over as a nurse. Uh, so she writes about like what it's like to be in a county that's like, I think she's like Lee County. So she's like, what it's like to like have grown up and like this Confederate, <laughs> a county named after, after a Confederate president, you know? And she and I were chatting. She's like, yeah, we need to do like an anthology of like Filipino Southern writers. I was fortunate that Louisville is, um, Fort Knox is just outside of Louisville and just outside of Fort Knox is Radcliffe. And there's a Filipino community there because so many soldiers marry Filipinos. So once a month, like when I was growing up, we would go to Radcliffe for these Filipino parties and we'd have like shown and we'd do limbo, you know, like <laughs> we would do it all. So, uh, and like in all of my mom's friends, were Filipinos who'd married like military men. So I grew up with a lot of other kids who were like in the same kind of like dynamic mm -hmm. as me. So I grew up in like this kind of like weird little, I won't say weird, but just like this, like I grew up in the South. I grew up black in the South. I grew up black and Filipino in the South. I grew up black and Filipino um, and like within like this military context in the South. So like, yeah, it's really hard to ever have come across anyone that has like the same kind of um, background and experience. But I bring up Annabelle and the anthology because when I was a kid, our Filipino grocery store, and it's actually still still there, uh, was called Dixie Oriental. And she was like, we gotta, we gotta name the book Dixie Oriental. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Dixie Oriental. Um... <laughs> which you would never which you would never use either of those terms today but in the 80s it was the spot yes so so yeah so becoming a writer then you know like my mom works at the post office my dad's a veteran like I didn't know anyone that was a writer I didn't know how one became a writer it was just like this kind of like abstract thing that some people did like how some people are movie stars, you know, some people are writers. Like, I don't know how you do either of those things. Um, you know, I went to college, but I was always writing. Like I was just kind of always writing um, either just for myself or like in writing groups or I took writing workshops, but I um, didn't become kind of like a capital W writer until like I'd been living in LA and I learned about MFA programs and I applied to them. And then like I got into one, it was gonna be like really expensive. And so I didn't go. And then I found out about fully funded MFA programs. And so I was like, oh, okay. Like I need to take the GRE. And, you know, I'm like living in LA. I'm spending all my money at Forever 21. I'm like going out. <coughs> I'm going out several nights a week with my friends and like the whole, like I'm getting my heart broken by guys. And the whole time my GRE book is just like getting dustier and dustier and dustier. And then my job moved me to Denver on very short notice. Like they got rid of my position they found me a new position, but it meant like I had to like move to Denver and I was miserable because I was like 29 
And I'm like living in the city that like, I never even thought about, like I never had any thoughts about Denver and I wasn't in LA with all my friends and I wasn't in Louisville with my family. Like I was in this like middle of nowhere, middle place. And like 29 is just like, not the time you want to like uproot your entire life like and move to like one of the whitest cities in America. Like that's not, mm, <laughs> it's inconvenient. But I called Denver my lifetime out because all of a sudden, like I had no friends. I didn't really have many love interests. Um, I had a couple. They were not great. Um, I'll save those stories for the book. But but it really kind of forced me to be like, okay, well, I have to be here for two years because they paid me several thousand dollars to relocate me to Denver. And if I quit before the two years were up, I'd have to pay the money back. And I'd already spent it all at like Bed Bath & Beyond. So I was like, all right, well, what can I do to like get through these two years? I was like, all right, I'm going to study for the GRE. I'm going to take the GRE. I took a lot of writing classes at the Lighthouse Writers Collective in Denver. And I started applying for MFA programs. And I I always tell people that like, if you're going through a hard time in life, having a plan that moves you closer to like some sort of change will be very empowering. It's way more empowering than like, sleeping with a fuck boy and like drinking too much and doing a lot of weed because you're in Denver. Like, trust me, that was disempowering behavior. Uh, but, but taking writing workshops and, you know, like applying to colleges, researching colleges, trying to become a part of the writing community um, was very empowering. Right around that same time, Kiese released Long Division and How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. And I had read his work on Gawker and then I was like reading his books and I went on Facebook and I saw that we had like three mutual friends. And so I was like, y'all should tell your friend, he's a really good writer. And they're like, you could just tell him yourself, like just send him a Facebook friend request. I was like, oh my gosh, like, like I knew you could talk to rappers you liked on like Twitter, but I didn't know you could become Facebook friends with writers you liked. So I was like, okay. And so at some point, you know, he, I was like, would it be weird if I like sent you something that I've written? He was like, no, no, no. Like, like I was wondering, it'd be weird for me to ask. And so that's how I got my first publication um, on Gawker was because of Kiese. And he's remained a really big supporter of, of my writing career. And that all happened as I was like going into like the MFA program. And I think like, I took this really circuitous kind of circuitous kind of route, but I don't think anything was wasted. Like no time was wasted. Like I was doing all this living, I was learning. And then when I graduated my MFA, I realized like all the sales experience I've been gaining at work was all of a sudden, those were transferable skills that I could now use to like sell myself as a writer and sell my writing. Um, So I decided when I graduated from my MFA, that I would move home to Louisville where the cost of living was lower. And I stayed with my mom. I stayed with my mom for a year. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, and I just like focused on becoming a writer. Wow. What a story. And it's, it's awesome when you have somebody who's willing to, you know, share a little bit of themselves to help mentor you and, and help you, you know, guide you into the career that you are hoping to have for yourself. And, you know, look at you now. You got a book coming out next year. And no shame at living in your mom's house, though. No. Rent is free. Like, at least with my, with no. my, I just got to clean up after myself and like help 
a little bit without <laughs> but with- yeah but I think it can be hard to be an adult and yes that home. part too especially if that adult is used to seeing you as a child in their home yeah. so that can be but it's but it's a privilege like it's a privilege to have a safe, clean home that I know I can go to. Like, I don't have the sort of parents that can like pick up a bill for me. You know, I don't have those kinds of parents that can like, you know, pay for my lifestyle while I become a writer. But I do still think it's a privilege to like have a home that I, that I can go to, to know that like, I'll never be homeless. You know, I will be in a clean home with ample amounts of food. (laughs) So, and I don't think writers talk enough about like the privileges that like they have that made it possible for them to do what they've done and, and, and get where they are, which is why I always try to bring up the fact that like, yeah, I stayed with my mom for a year, like until I could afford to, to move out. And even like now I tell her all the time, you know, like, yeah, if this doesn't work out. You know where I'm coming. Like I'm coming right, right back to your house. <laughs> Cause she like, you know, I took a year, I took like six months off after I sold my book, like being a professor during the pandemic was really hard. So I took some time off and then I was like, oh man, I got to start freelancing again. I got to start making money. And my mom was like, oh, I thought, I thought you stopped working. Like I thought you weren't working anymore. I was like, like not forever. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta work. Her aunt was like, I thought I thought you're coming back though. You yeah. <laughs> I thought you were done with that. I was like, no, I gotta work. She's like, well, you always find work. You always, you know, you always find work. It's fine. And I was like, well, I'm glad that you're feeling real confident because if I don't find work, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna be back. Like I'm gonna be back in your house, all up in your state. <laughs> uh, how has coming back uh, to Louisville? allowed you to flourish in all the spaces that you're living in now what is it to be home yeah I remember growing up people I would meet adults who like had left Louisville then moved back and I was like (laughs) why and when I moved to Southern California I was like I'm never going home like I I threw away all my socks because I was like I'm never wearing close toe shoes again like (laughs) I don't need it. You know, I left my coats in Louisville. I was like, oh, I just, I'll put those on when I get there, you know, kind of deal. Um, So I never thought I, like, I never thought I'd come home, but if you've ever left home and you've gone back and you've boomeranged back, you know, like there's this feeling that you get, there's like this restlessness that, that will just be with you until you make the move back home. Like there's no, like, I don't know what it is. It's like some sort of like some women have like, you know, this biological clock that tells them when it's time to start making babies. And some of us have this like biological clock that tells us when it's time to take our asses home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm really thankful I spent my 20s outside of Louisville. I feel like I grew a lot. I felt like, you know, it was a real safe space to be a slut. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I didn't really, I didn't really miss anything because you can come back and you know, still sleep with all the dudes from high school you missed, like, it's fine. Like, you're not going to miss it. It'll be fine. So, but like, (laughs) LA was like a really big city. So you never really feel like you can know all of LA or gain any traction, at least not as a transplant. But Louisville is a city that like, you can really wrap your arms around. And it's easy to create like social capital, social momentum. It's easy to get your name out there and like meet people if you really put in like that time and effort into kind of like growing your network. And then 
uh, it just makes it more possible to get certain projects and stuff off the ground. You know, like when I launched Taunt, I raised $40,000 very quickly in a very short amount of time in order to like do this for the community in order to like pay writers. And I was in the Google's like startup news initiative bootcamp and they were like, how did you like do this? It's like, I put in the time, you know, like I was an active member of my community. I supported other people's initiatives. I did other things, you know, like I taught workshops for free. I've done all this work. And because I'm in the community, I knew that there was a demand from the community for what I was trying to do. And so the community showed up to support that. I wasn't like trying to be like, y'all want this? <laughs> like, you know, like, <laughs> and then trying to get them the funds. They were like, no, nah, we don't want that. Like, you know, like I knew that like, this was something the community wanted. I knew I wanted to be able to like pay writers and creatives during the pandemic. Um, and being in a city like Louisville made that possible because like, you know, I like, I knew people. What's hard though, is that because it's a smaller city, the literary scene isn't quite as robust. I feel like there's a lot of writers right now that are coming up out of Kentucky and making noise, you know, like shout out to Olivia A. Cole, shout out to Joy Priest. Um, those are just like the two names that came most immediately. But yeah, like, you know, so I do feel like there's like some energy kind of happening, but, you know, I do miss having something like the lighthouse, like I had in Denver or the UCLA extension program in LA. Uh, and unfortunately we don't have that yet here in Louisville. And I hope at some point to be able to like create like a creative, like community um, writing workshop that can really serve as like, you know, not only a place for workshops, but like a place for like gathering and stuff. Was it, was it only an online magazine or did you have it in print as, as well? We only did online just because like print was so cost prohibitive. And then also just during the pandemic being like, okay, well, how would we distribute this? How are we going to get this out? Because even like the local alt weekly that's in print, um, a lot of the print publications here in town, like really scaled back. Uh, either they went to like bi-weekly publishing or they were just like placing their publications in less locations. So I knew like as a new outlet, like they just, there was like no way, there's no way we were going to be able to like pull that off. Like the ROI on being online and being able to put out more issues and pay more people was much greater than, than doing a print issue. When I was little, I love magazines. Like I was just telling, <laughs> talking about this yesterday, we were in Barnes and Nobles and I'm like, I will buy a magazine and never read it. It's just something about having it in the house so that when people come and visit, I'm like, look at, you know, I have this uh, edition of Vogue that has Beyonce on it. Like this is fine. <laughs> I love it. I've not read, you know, but I have it. And I remember being little and wanting to, you know, create my own publication of a magazine, yes. but never in my mind did it ever occur. Like this could be a thing that you do. Like you could go and actually work and create these things. And, you know, as I look back, I'm like, dang, I wish I, I did that. But now, you know, you get to a point where you're like, well, you can still do that in some kind of way. And to, so to see you, you know, even though it might have been a limited time to be able to bring something like this to the table and to show, you know, not only your city, but your state of like, this is who we have in our community. It's, it's amazing. And what I particularly like in your final issue, it was dedicated to those and highlighting those that were 25 and under. 
and it you know giving a platform to a generation that so often gets like overlooked and underestimated and it appears that often we find that older generations forget what it's like to be in those shoes because we've we've had those experiences (laughs) and I don't know why there's a switch that makes people forget I'm an adult I'm an adult now I was never a slut before (laughs) (laughs) it's the trauma we have to black it out we have to black out (laughs) it was too much it was too much so I was just curious as to what what message did you want those who are now in the place of being like a mentor to those who are 25 and under to get from reading an issue like like that in in taunt oh man i think like you know the thing about taunt was that each of those guest issues like every issue except for the first one had a guest editor and i was pretty hands-off for the most part because i wanted the guest editors, like I want to be able to share my platform. It's like, yeah, I have this platform, but I'm not the only one who's qualified to stand on it. So let me give opportunities to these other folks who've been waiting too long for their chance as well. And so I really want the guest editors to be able to like execute on their vision and bring in like the writers and creatives that are in their network to tell the stories that like I have no idea about, which is why I think we were able to surface so many interesting stories. So just being able to like trust people, there were, especially with the 25 and under issue, um, there were a few times where I like wanted to insert myself more. And then I was like, nah, 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 let me back up. Let me back up because they know what their audience wants, you know, and they know how to do things. And even though they're not the way you would have done something or doesn't look that way or sound that way or whatever, doesn't mean it's the wrong way. Um, so yeah. So just like having that trust, allowing people to like figure things out, being there to give them like the support and resources they need to execute on their vision without like squashing their vision or inserting yourself into that vision. Um, I think is like really, really important. And like, this is kind of weird, but also like, you know, like I'm 37 and I just like, I have this very like strong agenda that I'm always pushing that people like, like, I think once you're in your thirties, you should not be messing around with people who are like under the age of 25. Like it's just inappropriate. Like people haven't fully become who they are and you've already got like so much more experience and like it just and you know like I was a college professor for a while and like and I see like these young adults who are like 18 19 20 21 22 and it just like they're just trying to figure out so much and they're under so much stress so much pressure and they're trying to figure out their futures they're dealing with like mental health they're trying to like exist in this society and that's the thing that like just like really really upsets me like when men do it when women do when women do it you know of course there's an exception to every rule but I think in general that there are a lot of young people that would benefit from mentorship that end up being preyed on instead and you know they lose out on those opportunities they lose out on like being able to trust older generations. And I think also that trauma then gets carried into, you know, when they get older and then they turn around and, you know, participate in the same kind of behavior. So I do think that like, you just have to have some, some ethics about you. I mean, you know, that's just me. That's, (laughs) 
that was very well said because it's like you've basically expressed what you know maybe people of like like-minded as you were trying to explain to other people that might be a little bit more closed off because mm-hmm. me having like you know we're I'm 35 I'm turning 35 so I have sisters that are younger than me so I see it kind of like played out I'm like you just gotta you just gotta ha- like guide them but not no don't quench the fire because it's it what that's what makes them really really amazing because mm-hmm. they look at the world in such a different way because you're right like the pressure is really really big on these kids yeah. I call them kids <laughs> um but yeah and try to just basically go on it like very headstrong it's it's a whole other of like you know relationships and dealing with people pressure trauma Mm -hmm. like you know a lot of cultural dynamics that now are being unearthed it's not that easy and also complicated also I just want to like you know shout out to you and doing what you did for taunt because like not many people know you know how it came about and all this like support from Louisville and it just like amazes me because you're like you know it's a very you know it's a smaller kind of like community but that's why I'm like there's some sort of like also like envy because I'm like I don't know if in Orlando we would be able to do that sort of thing but I'm happy that you are able to do it and there's like this sort of like audience that are thirsty for that kind of content Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's also okay. Oh, I also want to say like when I'm 75, like dating some young hottie, like I don't want anybody to like pull up this clip and (laughs) get me on Twitter. Like all these celebs are being done right now. (laughs) The internet never forgets. It never. Right. right? I'll be like, look, (laughs) I'm 75. My ethics and morals have gotten real weak. They're as weak as my joints. Okay. But yeah, with taunt, like sometimes I think we think like if we make something, it's got to like last forever. We have to do it forever. And I think it's okay for things to be like capsule projects and last as long as they need to last. So with taunt, you know, like we were around long enough to like really kind of shift the kind of local industry. You know, there were a lot of writers of color, queer writers who were like, oh, this is the first time that like I've got paid for my work. And we were paying way above what like our local market rate was as well. Or this is the first time that like I've been like treated with respect or this is the first time that like I've had something like in this magazine and it really kind of like empowered them to ask for more and to like keep pushing to get their work out there. Because if you publish someone and then they never publish again anywhere else or they don't get an opportunity, then I mean, that's great if that's what they want, but I don't think you're really like setting off this wave if people don't uh, continue to like put themselves out there. So it's been really great to be able to watch uh, where folks go. It's really great to have people think differently about what they're capable of and what they can do. And then even though Taunt is no longer, you know, I had money left over when I ended it that like Queer Kentucky to keep like renewing the website, renewing the URL so that people's work will continue to be there that they can still still reference it and I think a lot of the content that we created and published is still relevant and will continue to be to be relevant so yeah it was it you know we had a lot of community support it was like a lot of work but 
you know, when a project's like, is at the right time, like you can just feel like the universe conspiring uh, in your favor to make it possible. And so taunt was one of those things. And when that energy started to dissipate, I was like, well, all right, then let's, let's, let's move on to the next project. Mm. It's a good marker of change, you know, for people to go back and look at and see like, you know, this is where we were starting to evolve. And, and yeah, this is where we were in the pandemic. Like this is, yeah, it does. It, it functions as like a time capsule in, in that way. Have and you- it's funny because it's like, I did that thing. And yeah. then sometimes I'll forget I did that thing. Like, you know, I'll see like a editor position or something like that. Like, oh, I don't have any editorial experience. It's like, girl, you like launched a whole magazine. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, you did that. Like in that time where like people's lives are very dark and like people felt so desolate. You did that. Yeah. So, and I'm just like, if she, if you can do this, what else can you do? anything anything possible uh and i'm glad that um you know we're talking about time and you know mentioning the the pandemic um today uh we had to we had to push our interview time because you you started an an eight-week workshop by way of catapult where you're teaching writers uh, how to write stories about heartbreak And I was just curious to know is, um, you know, there are a lot of stories that were floating around at the beginning of the pandemic of couples who were breaking up (laughs) during the pandemic, you know, having to spend a lot of time together. (laughs) And also, you know, you have different kinds of heartache when you're talking about grief and we were all going and still continue to deal with that collective grief of loss Mm -hmm. of loved ones during this time. How has teaching this particular workshop at this point um, differed for you in talking about heartbreak as a writer? This is the first time that I've taught for Catapult and also the first time that I've taught this workshop. So this is a brand new workshop. But, you know, I write about heartbreak a lot. I always joke that, like, I'm turning heartbreak into a hustle, you know, Um, (laughs) And yeah, so, I mean, we just started. So a lot of it right now is like, you know, the essay that we kind of like the first craft essay we've read, and I teach this essay a lot is Melissa Phoebos's mindfuck essay, which is really kind of like, how do we reject the narratives being given to us and actually like write the truth of our personal experiences. And I think that aligns so well with a heartbreak essay because a lot of times when we get our heart broken like there's the story that we tell ourselves about the relationship about the breakup about the other person like that obsessive story that just loops in your mind um and then a little time passes and we go okay maybe they weren't all bad like you know maybe they were just like a human being going through some things whatevs like I'm not taking it personally then a little bit more time goes by and you're like oh shit I was in that relationship too could I have potentially contributed <laughs> to the demise of said relationship? <laughs> and then a little bit more time goes by and you go, oh, well, maybe I'm a human being too as well. And we're just like two human beings. And, and it's the same thing when you're trying to get like at the truth of an essay, you need the, as Melissa says, you got to be able to pull back to that wide angled lens in order to kind of see the story within the story and to, to really be honest about what happened. And so, you know, with my book, like some of it, 
I was writing in real time in my 20s and I feel differently about the things that happened. And I'm also like a different person. I'm a different writer. So a lot of the hard work that I think a lot of writers go through with their first book is that kind of like trying to close the gap between like the time that has elapsed. And, you know, I'm about to be 40 in a few years and I am real ready to not ever, ever have to write and or think about my 20s again. Like I'm just, (laughs) I'm ready. Like I'm ready, I'm ready to be on some new shit. Um, but yeah, like just like, you know, writing such a puzzle. So like figuring out the, the puzzle of that. And I do think being able to like have this shifting perspective has benefited my relationships because now, because I know through the revision process, my essays are going to like go through like these different levels to get to the truth. Now, as I'm going through a breakup or in a relationship, I think, Oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to feel like this always. Like my last breakup uh, was in January and it was so frustrating because like, even as like the breakup was happening, I was just like thinking like, Oh, this is not actually a person I want to be with. Um, Really, (laughs) really thankful that they have revealed their truest self. Um, You know, like I can't, at this point in my life, I'm old enough and far enough along, like down this path that like, I can't be with anyone that's trying to like, try to make me less than what I am. You know, like I got to be with somebody who, one of my friends says, you got to be with somebody who like is making your world bigger, you know, like, and at some point I think maybe I'll write an essay about this and like how being with this particular person was going to be like, being put in like a shoebox diorama, you know, like he's like, he was trying to live this shoebox diorama life. And I was just like tumbling out the front of it. Like I didn't fit in it. Um, but even as the breakup was happening, I was thinking like, I still know that like my, like my heart and all of its heart glory is still going to be sad about this person that like, I'm not actually, that I know in the long run would not have been like a good fit for me. And I was not going to be a good fit for them either. Like, um, you know, nobody wants to be in a relationship that you feel insecure by comparison to the other person. So yeah, (laughs) and you know, it takes a certain type of maturity like certain like amount of years and like all of that maturing to occur for you to realize like oh I'm more awesome than you want me to be so bye it's not even like you know like I was being a little flippant but it's like I think one of the biggest things that I've learned about relationships and dating is how much of other people's shit is not about you like it just doesn't have anything to do with you And then that releases you from a lot of, a lot of like pain and suffering and like guilt or effort, you know, like, like, okay, I can't be any more awesome. Like you could be the perfect person in a relationship, but if somebody isn't in the right place to be in that relationship, then like, it's just not going to work, you know, like it doesn't matter how great you are. So then instead of like putting all that energy into trying to like convince them to be with you, you can just like move along. And then the inverse of that becomes true because then it's like, oh, well, how much of like what I'm doing in relationships isn't like actually about this other person is like about my own shit. So yeah, it's, it can be really freeing, but to know that that's going to be the process, like even as the breakups occurring, like, oh, you're going to be sad, 
but then you're going to have some perspective and you're going to think about this differently. And as annoying as it is, you have to go through the sad ranting script part where you like tell yourself that familiar narrative. And then at some point that it'll hurt a little less and the truth will like kind of dawn on you. I feel like emotional pain is very similar to like physical pain. Like if you sprain your ankle, it's going to take the amount of time that it takes to heal. Mm. And there are things you can do like not walking on it to like help it along, but it's still going to take the time it takes. And it's the same thing with emotional pain. Like your heart's going to take the time it takes to, to feel better. And there are things you can do like, you know, blocking the person on social media so you can move along a little bit faster, but it's still going to take the time. So we all have to have more respect for, for the emotional healing process, I think. Yeah, Amanda dropping them gems tonight. <laughs> See if you were not convinced to wait for this book. I don't know. I don't know. You've been you've been sleeping on her all this time. <laughs> but we here to wake y'all up. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Smell the coffee. What what I like about you and your writing is like how relatable you can be with with people and I'm like not every write like not every writer has that other writers can be more of like oh I I'm I'm having all this like realizations and you should listen to me I think you go in for the heart and then like pull you out and then I'm like look we're all like you know like you said we're all humans at the end how did you manage that how did you manage all of that I was one of those writers where people always told me like, I write how I talk um, and they did not, I don't think they meant it in a good way when they were saying it, but I didn't understand how it could possibly be like, like, I was like, how else are you supposed to write? Like, what are you talking about? You know? <laughs> and so instead of, I think my writing becoming like cleaner and more distant, it just ended up getting voicier, you know? And then once you develop a voice, it's like, okay, how do I wield that voice? You know, Mariah Carey isn't singing like and whistle octaves the entire song, like she's controlling that voice. So I think it's the same thing when it comes with my writing. Like I know that readers experience that voice and they're like, oh, like this is a voice that I trust to take care of me. And I'm going to like, I'm going to go on a journey with this voice, you know? Um, So even when we get to the hard, messy, emotional part, the reader knows because of the relationship they've established with the voice at the beginning, that it's going to be here for you. Like, I'm not going to just like drop some trauma on you or like tell you some salacious shit. Like, no, like I'm, I'm holding your hand. We're sitting side by side. We're having a little, we're having a little conversation together. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So I think like voice is really important. And then I also think um, you, you just got to be ready to be, to be honest, you know, like, and that comes through the revision process, like that essay um, in the, you know, in measure belonging, like that's not, that's not how that essay starts. You know, I'm, I want to write about being an auntie, about being a black auntie. And then I'm thinking about like, well, where did I get like these like experiences of aunties? And I think about my mom's friends. I think about my dad's sisters. And then I think about like, okay, well, what, what does that actually, like, what does that actually mean? What am I, what am I saying here? Because otherwise I think that essay could have gone like too saccharine, you know, because it's also about how much I love my little niece. So <laughs> it could be very easy to just like overdo it. So yeah, like, so yes. So writing an essay is like, singing you have to be able to control your voice 
but it's also like being a chef where you need to be able to balance the flavors as well. So yeah, I'm gonna give you a little truth, but I'm gonna give you a little humor. I'm gonna give you some earnestness, but I'm also gonna give you a little real talk so that, you know, every bite's gonna be a little taste, a little taste, a little umami. Yes. Maybe that's a workshop I should teach how to, how to put umami into your essay. I think, I think you should, because I think you really, you know, like you, you'd really done a good job on that essay and like other, the other essays that I've read that you wrote, it's kind of like you, you definitely have that voice. And I know exactly what you said. I'm like, oh, when you write, like how you talk to me, it's kind of like, you're, you're, you're like this friend in my head that I'm just like, I think I should just like, let her let her do this and we will see how it ends and maybe we'll be both happy at the end you know but it's it's such a it's such a wonderful journey to go through that that you know reading process with you and I'm just like oh okay Amanda (laughs) (laughs) um so at the at the top of the hour we mentioned um your book that is that is forthcoming next year Mm -hmm. um an anthology of assholes and it is said to be a humorous collection of 10 essays in which you revisit your experience of dating in your early aughts. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I guess we're still waiting on the date. Is there any information that you can give us to what to expect other than what was mentioned? Or are we just <laughs> going to have to sit and just wait until it is revealed to the world? Yeah. So the collection is like, you know, it's very humorous. Like it's about it's about dating, you know, in my early 20s. And um, it's about dating assholes. It's about how sometimes I was the asshole. Um, Maybe even a lot of times I was the asshole. (laughs) But it's also really kind of looking at, it's a coming of age essay collection, and it's coming of age against the backdrop of the Obama years. Mm -hmm. And so it's using dating as a vehicle to talk about not only how like I was changing as a young adult, but also how our nation was changing. Because in that time, we were also talking about consent, race, class, sexuality, gender, um, all of these things all the conversations around these things were changing as well. And so then dating becomes the perfect vehicle to talk about these things because it intersects all of them. You know, dating touches on every single point of your life. If that, if, if dating something you choose to make part of your life, then, you know, it's going to intersect. So then it becomes just like really ripe territory to explore um, these different narratives and yeah it's it's tough like when the nation's changing you're changing too like at the same time oh <laughs> well I was just wondering like how how did this book deal come about with little a was this you know a long process for you to to nail this down or did it walk us through because sometimes it comes quickly for people other times they you know they are working through the process of getting their book published So, you know, it's like, it happens fast, but it doesn't happen fast. Like, it's hard to explain like how time passes in publishing, especially how time passes in publishing within like a pandemic, which has distorted our sense of time. Um, But, you know, like I graduated my MFA in 2016. And a lot of times you go into your MFA thinking like, oh, I'm going to like finish my book before like I graduate and like I'm going to get this job as a professor and blah, blah, blah. And that's very rarely the reality. So like I, I, you know, I graduated in 2016, I moved back home and then I was just like, I don't even know if I know how to write anymore. I don't know if I'm going to write again. Um, A lot of like what you write for workshop and no one really talks about this when you're running your MFA 
is not the type of writing that like you can sell or publish online. You know, like everybody wants 700 words. You've been sitting in your MFA program writing 26,000 word chapters. Like nobody tells you like how to structure like a narrative like that tightly. And so the first essay that I wrote was about how when I got my MFA and I road trips um, back home to Louisville, I was like, oh, I need to escape the oppressive whiteness of MFA programs. And so I'm going to go on a tour of the national parks, forgetting that the great outdoors is also a home base for oppressive whiteness. And so I wrote this essay and then like I sent it to Longreads and I didn't hear back. And so then I emailed them and was like, hey, what's up? And Sari was like, oh yeah, no, I've just like been sick, totally want this essay. And the essay went viral. And so when that happened, there were agents who reached out to me and I, looking back now, I'm like, oh, I should have just sent them what I had because they were like big agencies, but I didn't feel comfortable. Like I just wasn't ready. So I didn't send them. And a few years later, like a few years goes by and like, I've published a lot, people know me. And I start to feel like, okay, I'm ready to get an agent. And I'm like, getting an agent is really hard. And I'm like, did I miss my window of opportunity? Like what happened? I would, so far, I would say getting the agent's the hardest part because once you have the agent, then y'all are like a little team, you know, and everything else that sucks, like you're doing it together. But with querying, it's like you send out a bunch of queries you don't know if they received it. You don't know if they're going to get back to you. Like you just don't know anything. So I had been querying agents for like a year uh, in 2019. And that December, I had like two agents reach out to me and my agent, Kayla Leitner, um, who's at Aisha Pandey now, but was not originally uh, there she was with like a she was with like Liza Dawson when she signed when I signed with her but she sent me this email about how like she read my essay in um, Lily Danziger's uh, burn it down collection and then immediately went to go find the rest of my work and she's like it just made me feel like I was up at like 2 a.m at the Waffle House like talking with my best friend and I was like shit like this is the agent for me like she gets it like you know she's a black girl from Georgia. Uh, and so I was like, yeah, like, you know, I ended up signing with her. And then like, she moves to like this much bigger agency. So I kind of like slipped into this bigger agency, like through the back door with my agent, but also like I was her first client. So, you know, like I was down to ride and she rode us up the hill. So, um, so yeah, so we were like, okay, I like signed with her December, 2019. And then we're like, all right, we got to get this book proposal together. We're going to go on submission in March. And then like the pandemic happens. Like I come back from AWP and I'm like, yo, like we have a pandemic. I'm the director of a college program. So I'm also like trying to figure out like how to support my college students. Like, what are we doing? Um, moving everything online. So I was like, yeah, I really like, I can't focus on this book proposal right now because of this. And then, you know, all the social justice uprisings began to happen around the murder, the unjust murder of Breonna Taylor by the Louisville Metro Police Department. And my agent reaches out to me and she's like, hey, like, I know you're in Louisville. So like, put yourself first, like, you know, no, no, no pressure on any of these things. So we didn't end up going out on submission, I don't think, until like June or July, just because there was so much going on. Um, and then like we went on submission 
<laughs> it was like all rejections. Like I got rejected from every editor in our first round. And after that, like I was hurt. I was like, well, fine. Like, I'm just going to sell this book out of the trunk of my car. Like, I was like, how is it that every time I write an essay, it goes viral, but you want me to believe nobody wants a book of these essays? Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense. So she was like, well, let's tweak the book proposal a little bit. And then because I was like being very sensitive about my shit, like, you know, Erica, I do, I was like very minimal very minimal tweaks she had asked for I did not get those to her until October and so we went back out on submission October 1st and there were three editors who were interested and so the book went to auction and we closed by the end of October um, 2020 and you know and that was the same you know that summer publishing paid me had just like popped off so it was really like you know, like being a black woman writer at that moment was like, okay, like, (laughs) what are we going to do? How are we going to pull this off? How are we going to make it happen? So yeah, you know, I like ran a college program, launched a publication (laughs) and got a book deal in the midst of this, in the midst of this pandemic. So 2021 was just like a burnout year for me. I was like, I can't do anything. I can't think about anything. Like my brain is just... So, but you know, it's 2022 now. I've re-entered the world. I'm back at it, um, bopping around. So yeah, so that's a really long answer. But yeah, so between getting my MFA in 2016 and selling my book in 2020, like that was like a four-year, four-year span. So, and then the book doesn't come out till 2023. But that's around the corner. You know, we already now, now. a new month. <laughs> You know, before you know it, it'll be there and, you know. But when I got that book deal contract in 2020 and it said 2023, I emailed them back. I was like, is this a typo? Like, (laughs) (laughs) And all due time, all due time. So, you know, like you said, the past two years was kind of like a blur. It was really tough for most people. But when we look at your Instagram, we always see you having a blast and enjoying (laughs) life. What were your biggest realizations you have for the past two years that allows you to to exude this like genuine happiness that we can even feel through like social media? (laughs) How do you do it? I mean, I just feel really like loved by like my community and my friends. Like I have a lot of just like really people who are just very generous of spirit, um, which I think, you know, being a single woman in my thirties, like, I feel like, I don't want to speak on behalf of all single women in their thirties, but I feel like it's very common to feel a little bit like, like, because you don't have that go-to default person that you can, the things you're doing in life can go a little unappreciated, you know, like there's no one there to throw you your surprise birthday party or, organize like the dinner to like celebrate your promotion or whatever but I've been very fortunate that like my friends and my sisters have all really like rallied around me and been really supportive you know even when I finished my book manuscript which I didn't think like I was like obviously very relieved because it was like the first time in 10 years that I hadn't thought about this book like I got to wake up the next day and be like that's it it's it's, it's with my editor it's in somebody else's hands but yeah my friend was like oh like let's have lunch and then showed up and she had reached out, you know, because of the pandemic, she reached out to all of my other friends and they'd like sent 
cards and like little gifts and things like that. So, you know, my sister baked a cake and bought a bottle of champagne. And like, I totally wasn't expecting like any of that. So, you know, I think even, especially during the pandemic, being single, being alone, you know, not having a child, (laughs) just being up in this house by myself. I think it was really easy to kind of feel isolated. And there were just like so many times that community really uplifted me and like rallied around me. And, um, you know, particularly if you're in the South, if you're not living like that super heteronormative, uh, married with two kids and, you know, working nine to five, <laughs> uh, you know, kind of life, like you can feel like on the outskirts a lot because my life is structured around my art. And so, Yeah. So I would just say like, I'm just really thankful that there are so many people in my life that love me. And in return, like I try to like exude the same sort of generosity for, for other folks too. That's a gift when you have community like that, who can be able to, you know, keep, stay connected and and do those loving things for each other. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're at the end of our conversation where we like to ask all of our authors the same <laughs> question. And that is, we want to know your top five books of all time. It can be of all time within this conversation. It might change when you get out the Zoom call. But, you know, we just want to know what books make you so happy and overjoyed that you like to revisit those things. And if that's the hard question for you, what are the top five books that you are excited about at the moment or those that are yet to come that you want people to know about? I am like the worst person to ask this question because I have so many favorites. Like when you forget your password and the security question is like, what's your favorite food? It's like, how am I supposed to know what my favorite food was in that moment when I answered this question? Like, (laughs) Like it's it's always kind of shifting. But I will say, as like a nonfiction writer, the like four, like the five books that like, I really kind of like turn to as like, these are excellent examples of the craft. These are like books that like, I enjoyed reading as a reader, but then also learned a lot from as a writer. So Kiese is heavy, you know, like easy, easy, easy to say. Kiese is heavy. Therese Myatt's Heartberries. Um, Melissa Phoebos abandoned me. Uh, gosh, why am I blanking on the rest of my list? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's five books because like, I think about those a lot. Um, uh, ocean bungs on earth were, were briefly gorgeous. And then let me just take, my, let me take a little walk over to this bookshelf. <laughs> I was about to say they're, they're all up in there. <laughs> They're all, they're all right over here. Watch it be that one book she lent out to somebody. Cause she's like, this is my favorite. You need to read this. <laughs> right? That's exactly what'll happen. Like, <laughs> I think the issue is that for like a long time, Roxanne Gay's Hunger was like also on that list. And then like, I read some other book and I was like, oh no, like this is, this is the fifth book. So But yeah, we'll just, we'll just, we'll just put that in there. Well, oh man, but now I'm looking at Carmen Maria Machado's uh, In the Dream House too, which is also very, very good. But 
Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, that's what I'm going to go with. So, <laughs> which I guess is technically like six, but yeah, like those are the books that I feel like I just, I learn a lot from as a, as a writer. And I think it goes back to what I was saying about voice control. Like all those writers have um, extraordinary control over their voice and they, you know, they don't, the readers trust in them uh so so yeah let me let me go with those those six and y'all can tell everyone that minda honey wrangle the sixth book <laughs> <laughs> no th- those are really like good choices because um we may you know we started doing nonfiction not too recently um in vulgar geniuses and i've promised myself that i really want to read more nonfiction especially you know that really like like stories about like indigenous or like more of like my people story and you know I'm always so very curious when we interview like you know nonfiction writers because they always have the this like secret gems of like books that sometimes not a lot of people have heard about you know but it's it's kind of nice to like shake up the the reading list of people Mm -hmm. because you know, non nonfiction is a is a pillar in the reading community that I think a lot yeah. of people don't don't appreciate very much, especially like essays. I have like a newfound love for like short stories and essays. Like the past yeah. few years that we've been doing this, I'm like I'm down to read like three books of like essays. I'll be honest with y'all, I wasn't even really that into like uh, short story collections because I just kind of like felt like I don't I don't get these. Like I don't I don't get them. <laughs> <laughs> until I read Don Teal's Milk Blood Heat and then I was just like oh like this is how I'm supposed to feel when I read a short story collection and then I read Disha's um The Secret Lives of Church Ladies I was like oh like this is it this is it like all those like you know old white dudes that were on the syllabus when I was getting my MFA and I was just like I don't I don't get this like I don't understand these perspectives I don't understand what I'm supposed to take away like I was just reading the wrong short story writers I was being exposed to the wrong writers so all right mm-hmm. when in doubt always read black women like <laughs> yes. maybe that is it that's the answer right those there. are like liquid gold like right there it's like those make you feel a certain way like the tingle is different mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know and you know, and you know you're reading something really 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 good yeah and to be in that company of writers you know you all just spent an amazing past weekend um with so many amazing people um and to know that you know soon your book will be out in the world and you will hey. be having other people talk about your your work with that same love um we're so so excited for it we cannot wait we can't wait but minda thank you so much like it means the world for you to come and talk to us and help celebrate our birthday and talking about your work everything yeah and uh, everything in between the greatness that is minda honey and we hope (laughs) again when when that book drops We'll come yes. back. Put me, put me on the book club lineup. Put me on. Yes, I'm. 
I'm excited to pick my favorite essay though. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm like, oh, I can't wait. There's only 10. I'm excited to ask make cuts. Honestly, I don't even know if there's like 10. It might be more like nine or eight. Like we can take what we can get. Yes. We'll what we can get. I would take like the the, you know, like how you had like in tapes the side A and the side B. I'll take the side B stories as well. Yes. Yes. No, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for inviting me on. And like, again, I apologize that I lost my voice at AWP. <laughs> that sounds good to me. I yes. You, you sound great today. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again. You take care. Be well. All right. Y'all have a good night. Good, good night. night. Bye. See you on the gram with your cute outfits. <laughs> If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Let us explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.